how to choose companies that can survive and thrive over a long period of time and outperform the S&P 500. My guest today is managing partner at JDP Capital Management, Jeremy Deal, and he's going to share with us the four characteristics that the best performing companies have in common, whether or not he's invested in companies like Spotify, Tesla, and Apple, and whether he sees another market crash in the last quarter of 2020. This video is full of nuggets of wisdom, so grab your coffee, a pen and a paper to take notes. I'm your host, Kiana Danielle, a four-time and a best-selling author and the founder of the Investiva movement, the march to jump on to take control of your financial future and to make your money work for you. Our mission is to help 1 million moms start investing on their own. So if you are one or if you know of a mom who could benefit from making their money grow, please spread the word. The best place to start is investdiva.com. Now let's go and say hi to Jeremy Dale. I am super excited because you were recommended by one of my good friends, Guy Spire, who is the reason why I started investing the way that I do right now, because I used to be a Forex trader. Yeah, I, I, was, I was on the dark side. I was doing Forex trading. <laughs> and he kind of like grabbed me and was like, you're doing it wrong. I'm like, okay, teach me. So that's basically where we are today. And I understand that your style of investing is actually a little bit different than Guy's. So I'm super excited to learn about it. And I know that you are a little bit more growth oriented and you are focusing on companies that can thrive and survive. So before yeah. we get into your strategies, Jeremy, can you please tell us a little bit about your backstory? How did you even get started with investing and how did you choose this specific type of investment strategy? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. And uh, Guy is a, a friend of mine and he's done so much for me. He's an incredible investor, somebody that I look up to and admire a lot. Not only do I admire the way he invests, um, but I admire the way he lives. Um, and he's, he's just done a lot for me over the years. So I was very honored that he, that he introduced us. My background in a nutshell is I discovered investing um, probably in my late teens. Um, and I just, you know, I'm from Southern California and I didn't, really have a way to figure out how to do it. There is not really a place to, there's a lot of investing going on. And so after school, I ended up working for an entrepreneur. And the idea was, hey, learn about business and maybe that will make you a better investor. A couple of years after that, that entrepreneur invited me to, to join a startup with three other people from, from the original team. And we started a business and, and grew it over the next several years. And it was an incredible experience. And um, we sold that to private equity. And that was the opportunity for me to have the confidence to go out and, and start JDP. And so JDP initially was focused on private companies, uh, companies that were distressed, um, that had, were divestitures of, of public companies, so divisions of public companies that potentially we could have bought cheap because of the financial crisis. And so I spent a lot of time looking at really distressed companies. Um, and... What was happening was the public companies were a lot cheaper, better value than buying the private ones, especially when you were looking at these low growth uh, post the 2008, 2009, just kind of destroyed businesses. So we found that by investing in a higher quality business that were most of them were publicly traded, that 
you just had a better a better opportunity to earn a, a, a longer a longer return a better a better return for longer so ultimately made the transition to only investing in public companies and launched the modern JDP in 2011 actually having this skin in the game and working at a small company really makes a difference because you actually see how the company is structured, how teams work with each other. Yes. And that actually had an impact on me too. Like if I had not worked at a company who went public while I was there, I would not have a lot of the knowledge that I have now about IPOs, for example. So that actually gives you a lot of confidence. So thank you so much for sharing that. So can you tell us a little bit about the strategy that you're working on right now? I want the details. I want to know, yeah. How do you select the companies? Because there are thousands of companies out there, obviously, there are value, there are growth. We got the market sentiment going on for us, and yeah. then we are in current times, which is very, very volatile. So I think the first question is, how do you select the companies, yeah. and what is your time frame of investing? Yeah, so um, to start, we, you know, I started looking at, as I explained, I started looking at distressed companies, and distressed companies require you to do an enormous amount of research because you have to go, you have to look at what's underneath the hood and figure out what the company is going to be. Um, and what we found during the early years is that the returns were great, but we constantly had to turn over the companies, meaning we had to sell them when they mean reverted, when they became what we thought were, was fully valued because they didn't have a growth component to it. And it was a little bit of a game of hot potato. And so about three years in, looked up and decided that this was probably not the, the, the way that I saw myself investing long-term and that the best returns were focused on companies, focusing on companies that had the ability to reinvest 100% of their cash flow back into the business at incrementally higher rates of return. And if you look at the very best investors in the world, they've been able to take large positions in companies that have that particular capability and own them for very long periods of time. So we started by uh, looking at companies that had been, that had outperformed the market by a really, really wide margin. Um, if you had bought them on the worst possible times so of the peak of a market, of a major market cycle and held them through the next peak. So we call that the peak to peak analysis. We looked at several major peaks going back in time, but the two most relevant were the dot-com uh, peak that peaked in 2000 and the, and the financial crisis that peaked, the market peaked um, in 2007. And so we, we, we imagined and we looked at a screen of companies that were investable companies, so 250 million or more market cap, they were continuously traded and imagined that we bought them at the absolute peak, the worst day in history and held them continuously through the next peak. And it was incredible what we found. So there were, there were so many companies that, that were able to completely beat the market that if you had just gone on vacation and done nothing, they outperformed the market by two, three, four X. And what was remarkable also is that these companies seemingly had nothing in common in terms of sector, in terms of market cap, and in terms of how long they had been in business. So when we dove into those, we found four commonalities of companies uh, that all, the, all these companies shared at the top. And then inversely, if you looked out at the very bottom, the companies that underperformed dramatically and never recovered, um, they had pretty much four things that they had in common. But what they did not have in common was a cheap price. So the cheap stuff that you bought, the crap businesses that you bought because they screened really cheap at the peak, never recovered, and they were never a good investment. Even if you bought them at the bottom, they still did, were not able to outperform. So there were four characteristics that we came away with uh, for companies that could survive and thrive for long periods of time. One is having a business model that is adaptable and relevant in tomorrow's economy. 
And I think this is really important given what we're, what the way the market is looking now, because that's changing very rapidly. The second thing is having durable pricing power that is protected by a growing competitive advantage. So that means you have an advantage that's growing and allowing you to continue to increase your prices over very long periods of time. So the third thing is capital allocation and balance sheet strategy that supports the company's moat. So whatever your balance sheet looks like, whatever your capital strategy is, whether you're asset light or asset heavy or borrowing in the market or buybacks or whatever it is, there's a, there's a continuous cycle that, that supports the company's moat, that supports the company's competitive advantage and feeds back into that durability of pricing power that I mentioned in the second survivor and thriver trait. And the, the fourth one is a, a really strong alignment of interest between management and the equity holders. So we prefer companies like Spotify that have really strong insider ownership, um, that are founder led. Now they're, they're not always that way, but we prefer them when they have big skin in the game where it's 99% of their net worth. And in the case of Spotify, Daniel Ek is publicly committed uh, to not being interested in selling Spotify and just continue to duke it out for the next decade with competitors. So we like that. One of the points that you mentioned is the future economy and them being relevant, which is something that I absolutely agree with. But does that mean that you're mainly investing in the tech sector? Because that is kind of the future of the economy. Everything is going online. Yeah, you, so you can find companies that are relevant in tomorrow's economy that are not necessarily like a SaaS business or a pure play software company. And I think that's what a lot of people think of. As a fund, we, we tend to be tech heavy and, and that switch happened um, around COVID because we realized that COVID, as you know, brought forward a lot of trends that were prevalent in society. And so um, I would say before COVID, we had a, maybe a 50-50 balance, but we looked around and said, what companies are going to be able to thrive in tomorrow's economy, which was the COVID and post-COVID. And so that uncertainty led us to focus on companies we knew would be able to, at minimum, gain market share at the expense of their old economy peers. So this can be a wide variety of companies. Um, it can be, but generally speaking, technology um, just refers to a company that is on the cutting edge and is able to grow through creating efficiency um, and, and or cutting costs out of the system. So they're creating efficiency, they're adding value, and they're cutting costs. So it's, it's deflationary by, by default, but those are the companies that are growing and those are the companies that are probably going to be more relevant in tomorrow's economy. Now that doesn't mean that an old economy business or a, a brick and mortar business or a company stamping out metal is not gonna be relevant in tomorrow's economy. They could absolutely be relevant, but are they gonna be able to keep up with our benchmark, which is the S&P 500? And the S&P 500 is, has been historically for the last 60 years or 50 plus years dominated by the top 50 companies. And so if you ever want to have an, if you ever want to look at what the future of the S&P 500 is going to look like, you have to study the top 50 companies. And when I look at the top 50 companies, even the top 10 companies, that is my competition as a fund manager. And ultimately that will reflect the, the returns of the S&P 500. So if you like it or not, the, the, the best companies in the world are generally tech oriented. And so uh, in order to compete, because why would you invest in my fund if you could just invest directly in the S&P and we could never outperform the S&P? Uh, so in order, to, in, order to, in order to win long term um, in today's economy, um, the, the companies that we find that are best suited for that tend to have a tech bent. Did you get tempted at all to invest in pharmaceutical companies when COVID hit? No, I didn't. I, and it's not because I think they're bad or wrong. I just don't have that background. And I do feel like you need a little bit of a, a background um, to, to have a, a strong opinion 
on drug, but, but we, I probably looking back, I probably should have done more research. I probably should have even hired somebody that could have helped me pick through the rubble because there's been some incredible returns in that sector. Absolutely agree. I have an engineering, electrical engineering background, and my students continuously ask me about pharmaceuticals and cannabis. And I'm like, I don't know. I just don't <laughs> understand. I don't get it. But yeah, so that's, that's definitely a hot topic. So I'm going to just throw in a bunch of stocks at you. And I wanted to get your opinion, if that's all right. I'll is do that, my best. That... I'll do my best. You know, we run a really concentrated portfolio and, and generally don't have a, a strong opinion on, on things outside of the you know, six or seven companies that are core to our portfolio. But um, uh, I, I can do my best as long as you let me say, I don't know. That I absolutely, absolutely. Please do. If you don't know, please do say that you don't know. So I'm going to talk about the hyped up, very hyped up stocks yes. as of today, Tesla and Apple. So I'm assuming you probably have them in your portfolio. I, I don't. I don't own either of those companies, but um, obviously I wish I, I, I did, uh, especially both of those companies have been incredible winners. And I have no real reason for, for not owning um, either of those companies. And a funny story, I actually did own Tesla in 2012 because there was a time when it had a market cap of about $3 billion or, or less than 1% of where, or, yeah, I guess less than 1% of where it is today. Because at the time, the, the contracts that they had to build drivetrains for a Toyota and electric drivetrains for a Toyota and Mercedes um, the present value, the future earnings of just those, those two contracts are worth more than the market cap of the company. You had the optionality to own the company for free. And uh, that, that if I would have held that stock, it would have been um, worth well, well in excess of the total value of my fund today. I'm so glad that you said that. I actually took profit of my Tesla stocks when it hits right before 2000. I, I believe I took profit at uh, 1500 and I've ha I had held it for uh, quite a while. So yeah. I took profit and people are like, you not only have one Tesla share. I'm like, what? So people like literally shame you for having only one Tesla share. I'm like, look, okay, Jeremy's on the same boat. So uh, there is no. Yeah, I don't own it, but I, I think what the company's doing is absolutely incredible. Um, and, and one of the things, and I follow, I follow the company relatively closely uh, considering I don't own it. Um, and one of the things that impresses me that I feel like people don't fully appreciate is the exponentiality, the growth of the, the, the miles driven, the autonomous miles driven. And, and I do think when it does come time for a, for a country or a government or a city um, to decide who is, the, who is one of the winners in, in allowing autonomous driving, they're going to look to the data and they're going to look to the companies that have the most uh, mile, proven miles driven. And, the, and the, the miles driven at Tesla just so far exceeds Waymo and any other uh, electric company that we've seen. So I do think they have an enormous advantage there, but I can't speak to valuation. Why aren't you adding it to your portfolio? Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes, you know, as a manager, you don't have a good, good reason um, for not owning something. And it's just something that it's, it's been a battleground stock for a long time. Um, and I think you've had to have had an opinion on it for a really long time. And sometimes it's easier um, and I probably shouldn't be saying this publicly, but sometimes it's easier just to not own certain companies for the sake of your, of, of your business. Um, and so it's been such a polarizing company. Um, I've had investors email me and say, God, I hope you don't own this stock. When Elon Musk was on the Joe Rogan show, Smoking Pot, you know, sending me random messages and they don't know anything about the company. And so I, you know, obviously the, the company is much, much bigger than one person. But it's just a politically, it's a political hot potato as a fund manager. So um, 
Obviously, from a financial perspective, that was the wrong decision. But in this case, I just felt like there were probably better opportunities for, for our fund. Absolutely agree. And that is so true what you just said, because when Tesla stock dropped, and I'm, I'm saying this because Tesla is something that I've been following for a while and is the one that is the most polarizing topic that every time I bring it up, everybody has an opinion and nobody agrees. When Tesla stock dropped to 400 three months ago, I, I bought and I made a video about it and I said, hey, I'm buying Tesla. And everybody, everybody on the comment section was like, you're, you're stupid. You don't know what you're doing. And then now that is incredibly overpriced. Everybody's like, why did you, why did you sell? You're stupid. So everybody has an opinion. So I totally understand where you're coming from. And this brings us to the next question. You are a hedge fund manager. So you basically manage other people's money. Whereas with a mutual fund, we can go and invest on it on our own. They're both pooled vehicles. So the best way to understand them in America, the biggest difference is there's in a mutual fund is for retail investors. Um, there's daily liquidity generally, so you can, you can trade in and out of the mutual fund. And there's no performance fee for the manager. So there's no alignment of interest other than a management fee or a load with a mutual fund. Uh, in other parts of the world, like in Europe, they have a similar structure called the USITs, and they actually do allow for a performance fee. But in the US, the biggest difference between a hedge fund and a mutual fund is the manager um, is allowed to earn a performance fee based on the performance of the fund. And so um, the incentive, unfortunately, is not aligned um, as well in a mutual fund because, the, 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 because they turn into machines to gather, to raise money at, at whatever cost, because the management is not incentivized by the performance, but only incentivized by assets under management versus in a hedge fund is for high net worth people that are qualified, in our case, are qualified and accredited investors only. There is not daily liquidity, so they can only come, they can only invest once a month and they can only redeem every year. So much more of a private equity-like structure. But we do manage one pool. We, we make money and we're incentivized um, to make a return above a hurdle rate. And that's what we focus on. And we focus on having the fund be profitable because that's really how we get paid. We have a small manage fee, ma management fee that covers our expenses, but we get up in the morning to try to outperform our not only our hurdle, but the benchmark. And what are the qualifications to get into a hedge fund? A credit, there's, a, there's an accredited investor and a qualified investor. We like to have both. So um, 1.5 minimum million net worth or 250,000 is a, so maybe that's a qualified investor. Then accredited is 5 million minimum in net worth or something like that. And if you combine them together, uh, not together, but we, have, we require you to be both. So essentially a 5 million um, in net worth. And you have to attest to that through, through signing. Um, you know, a bunch of papers that allows us to, to charge a performance fee if, um, you know, if, if we qualify that year. So what happens if you underperform? So nothing really happens just like in a mutual fund other than there's a high watermark. So we're not allowed to earn a performance until we achieve back what we've lost plus a hurdle rate. In our case, it's 6% plus pay back any expenses that, that you incurred as an investor in the fund. So any fund expenses, and you have to achieve that high watermark. So um, you, there's no opportunity to kind of double dip, so to speak, on the fee. So, um, you know, the, the problem is if you, if you underperform too long or if you lose money too long, you know, you, you just, there's no reason. It's, it's harder to stay in business. So um, technically, we don't necessarily have to pay back losses, but 
um, just like in a mutual fund doesn't have to pay back losses either. But um, we try to make sure that we don't have, we don't incur permanent losses to, because we don't use leverage. Um, so we don't borrow money and we don't trade options and we're not long short, we're long only. And we buy companies that we believe um, have these kind of survivor and thriver traits. It doesn't mean we'll be right all the time, but um, it, it generally provides a, a margin of safety from that perspective. Awesome. I have one final question yes. for you. And that is a little bit speculative, so I'm not sure if you're going to be willing to answer, but are you investing right now in the current market condition? And do you think we're going to see another dip in the market? There's always going to be another dip. I always, I think. Well, within, within yes. 2020. <laughs> I know it's timing. I mean, the, 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 the elections coming up generally is like the, probably the, the, the reason that you'll see some, some big volatility. When Trump got elected, you know, the markets went down and then went way up. When Obama got elected on the second term, markets went down and then went way up. So there will probably be some kind of extreme volatility when the outcome of the election happens, I would imagine. Um, but Absent that, I think that's what people are really focused on. And I, if I had to guess what would be the catalyst for a big up or down movement in the next uh, four months, it would be the election. Because um, I don't know how much bandwidth there is for anything else to happen and, and to be that extreme in such a short period of time. It seems like that's what people are focused on. Right. And you don't think that the second wave of COVID could have another impact? You think we're already kind of surpassed that? Yeah, I do. I do feel like, um, and I'm in more of the, the kind of neutral to, to bullish camp. Um, and I think if you go, you know, forget what, forget what you hear the talking heads on TV. If you just go around in the street and you go around uh, different cities, um, I, I feel like people, I don't know how much worse it could be. I mean, people are uh, doing what they can. They're, they've learned how and they're adapting to life with COVID. Um, so I guess, you know, there could be, you know, we may need some more stimulus or something like that, but at the end of the day, people are figuring it out. They're figuring out how to live their lives. They are adapting, they're starting online businesses. They're doing what they can to make it work. And, um, I can't imagine that, that it could be much worse than, than it was, um, you know, a month or two ago, sentiment wise. And you have your first daughter on the way. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I have my first daughter, a Christmas baby. So we're very excited about that. Oh my God. That's so amazing. I, first of all, congratulations, but I know that it must be tough during this times and going to the hospital, but, um, yeah, you're going you're gonna to make it work. Are you excited? We're going to make it work. Yeah. We're very, very excited. Just picking through names and going through that phase. It's our first. So, it's going to be um, amazing, but I'm going to yeah. give you some tips. Please. Be prepared for not sleeping for at least three months. So. <laughs> okay. So what's your favorite stroller brand? Oh, definitely not stroller, but you need to get the snoo. The snoo. Okay. Yes. What is the snoo? The I'm, snoo I'm taking a note. is a smart crib that if you want, if you want to remain semi-sane during the yes. first six months, you need to get it. It worked perfectly for us. I haven't heard that many stories that it didn't work, but it basically, instead of you getting up to, because the babies might not be a great sleeper. Some babies are, right. but if you find out that she's not a good sleeper, uh, this, the snoo basically hears the sound of the crying baby and starts moving. Oh. And it has levels. One, two, three. If she's just crying a little bit, it'll just gently move it. If she's crying like crazy, it'll move it more. And then if it goes like, you know, if, she, if something crazy happens, then it actually alarms you, which was like, we got it a little bit late. 
but the two months that we had, we got it when she was four months old. Okay. And uh, because she was a little bit of a larger baby, so we only had to, we, we were only able to keep it until she was six months, but um, it was worth it. Oh my God. Okay. Well, that's, that's great advice. Uh, yes. It's S N O O. I'm not getting any commission or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it definitely worked for us. So I appreciate um, that. You guys watching from home, tell me the best thing that you took away from Jeremy's investment strategy and what are the things that you're rethinking now about your own investment strategy? Go ahead in the comment section and let me know. Again, thank you so much everyone for joining the Investiva Movement. Make sure to subscribe and hit that bell notification button and I'll see you in the next episode. We have this tradition. I ask all of my guests to make a silly face. You have to get, oh, okay. You have to get used to that because you're going to be making it for your daughter. <laughs>